Welcome to the Boonville Worship Center Sermon Podcast. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to Wednesday evening adult Bible study. So this is week four. We have a five-chapter book, and, and I've done fairly well to stay on track as far as chapters go. So we have looked at the first three chapters over the, over the last three weeks, and I'd like to try to summarize those, and then we'll go back and talk about it a little bit. So chapter one, I would, I would describe it as salvation for these believers in Thessalonica. Chapter 2, their service. Chapter 3, sanctification. They're growing. And tonight we're going we're gonna to be looking at what's probably going to look like Paul decided to write one topic and then he changes his mind and right in the middle of the, a chapter started on something new. It's not the case. Realize that the chapter and verse divisions were not put in Scripture until about the 15th century. So sometimes these chapter and verse divides just don't make any sense at all. And sometimes we have to work through that issue. When you look at the original Greek, there are no spaces between the words. There's no paragraph numbers. <laughs> So you had to read everything in context of the Greek language to be able to understand it. Thankfully, we don't have to do that. We've got lots and lots of great translations that we can work from, right? And, and I trust that you have several. If you got a phone, you got access to the Bible app, and you can look at a dozen different translations if you want. So a little bit of a reminder. We think that this book was probably written around 50 AD and is probably the first book of the New Testament canon. So if you remember the, the journey that Paul uh, and Silas and Timothy took to go from um, there, they were in Jerusalem, went north. Paul wanted to go to Asia, but God prevented him. He saw a man from Macedonia, which is northern Greece, saying, come to us. And so he headed west into Europe. And his first stopping place was Philippi. And there, he and Silas got thrown in jail, Acts chapter 16, because Paul drove the demon out of this gal who was making money for all of her handlers. In chapter 17, we see Paul moving from Philippi after he was freed from jail by God he goes to Thess Thessalonica, driven out of the city and beaten there to Berea, which is not very far away. Same thing happens, beaten, driven out of the city. They go to Athens. Paul preaches this phenomenal sermon on Mars Hill. Very poor reception. Goes from there then to Corinth. And in the meantime then, in the, in the city of Thessalonica, Paul, along with Silas and Timothy, had founded a church. And typical to the way Paul did things, he went to the synagogue and started there. And so, you know, when, when we say church, that brings a whole connotation, doesn't it? We think building, we think committees, we think parties, <laughs> we think upkeep of the grounds, all that kind of, that's not church. It's, it's the church structure that we have today, but the word ecclesia means called out ones. And so when you read church in the Bible, it's really tough because we got something in our head that we got to just kind of dump out. You know, you turn your head on one side and dump it out your ear and say, okay, now this is church. This is what church looks like, and it didn't look like this. Right? 
the church started with Jewish believers. Jesus was a Jew, all the disciples, except, and well, Luke wasn't a disciple, so they were all Jewish, right? The church around Jesus was Jewish. And it, it wasn't until later, reading the book of Acts, when finally it was opened up to the Gentiles, right? So we have an idea that I think we need to get past when we say the word church. But Paul founded a church in Thessalonica, Ecclesia, there we go. Okay, and he, in, in Acts, it says he was there, Acts 17, it says he was there for three Sabbaths. And that's why I talk about, you know, it's Jewish, and so the time reckoning was Sabbath to Sabbath. If you've ever had the privilege of being in Israel on Shabbat, you know what happens. The whole country shuts down. You don't do anything. You don't turn on a light. You don't turn off a light. You don't turn up the heat. You don't turn down the heat. If you didn't do it before Shabbat starts at 6 o'clock, you don't do it until Shabbat's over. It's truly a day of rest. So, if you're a good Jew, what you'll do is you get a Gentile to do it for you, but that's a whole different, whole different story. <laughs> we were there as Gentiles and got asked to do some things, but it, Shabbat is truly a day of rest. And so, when Paul was in Thessalonica, he was there three Sabbaths. He could have gotten there before the first, could have left after the, the third. So, at most, he was probably in Thessalonica for a month, Okay. So in that period of time, he taught those new believers a lot. And just like any new believers, there's struggles. Just like any believer today, there's struggles. <laughs> Tell me about your perfect day sometime. <sighs> Last week, we actually talked about being appointed to affliction as believers in Jesus Christ. It's going to happen. And so Paul was in love with these people. He wanted to know how they were doing after they were driven out of the city. So he sends Timothy back to get a report. Paul goes from Athens to Corinth. And in the meantime, Timothy goes, finds out what's going on, and then comes back and reports to Paul. So that's, that's the basis of those first three chapters that, that we're, we're looking at then Paul's response to what he heard from Timothy about the church. Now let's think about this. If you write a letter to someone and, you know, how long has it been since you physically pulled out a pen, a piece of paper, and wrote a letter? We used to do it all. My mom would do Christmas letters <laughs> telling things about our family, some of which were true. Uh, <laughs> you know how you embellish uh, when you're trying to impress your friends. Write a letter. We don't do that anymore. We write emails. We write texts. We tweet. I mean, you know, we do anything but something permanent. Although pretty much anything digital is really permanent. You just don't realize it. <laughs> It's all out there in cyberspace somewhere. Wrote a letter, okay? So think about that. Paul writes a letter, he goes to Kinko's, and he makes 50 copies. No. No, he doesn't. He had one letter. <laughs> and it was addressed to a church. So it was taken to the church, right? One letter. And then somebody, to preserve that, had to copy it. And that's the process by which we have the Bible today. You had to have scribes, people that would copy. I mean, we have this Western mindset about how things happen, and it's not, not at all correct, right? He wrote one document, probably on parchment, and then sent it. And so if God didn't want us to have the word that he's given us, 
It could easily have just disappeared, couldn't it? If you only had one copy, it could have gotten burned, it could have gotten wet, anything could have happened. But he, on purpose, gave us this book. So when you, when you open this book and treasure it, which is what you should do, this is directly from God. He's speaking to you through his word. So we cannot discount the fact that it took a lot of <laughs> steps to get it to here. There are many, many copies of the New Testament and even more of the Old that support what we have in our hands today. So, anyway, Paul writes to the church and lets them know a few things. He, he lets them know in chapter 1 about their salvation, in chapter 2 about the service that they have shown. And he said, your witness echoes, and he used that word, Exeketai, meaning it just bounces off everything in Macedonia, northern Greece, and Achaia, southern Greece. So they were a dynamic witness for Jesus Christ. Three Sabbaths, and they grew up enough to do that. How does that happen? It's only by the power of the Holy Spirit, right? It doesn't just happen. So then in chapter 3, he talks about their growing. So Paul is directing very pointedly to this church based on what he's heard from Timothy in that report that came back. So that's, that's where we find ourselves. We're going to be in chapter 4 tonight. I wanted to just remind you of a couple things. This, this to me, may be one of the key verses in, in the whole book, where Paul talks about the word of faith, the labor of love, and the patience of hope. And we talked last week about this being past, present, and future, tense of the, of the idea of sal salvation. Justified, I was saved. Sanctification, I am being saved. And glorification, I will be saved. From the power of sin, I'm sorry, from the penalty of sin, from the power of sin, and from the very presence of sin. That's the three tenses of, of salvation. And, and so we see that in the first three chapters. Now, before I forget to do this, we have a Facebook page that's called exactly that, BWC Equip. And it's not just for when I teach. Other, other people teach and will put things out there. Um, anyway, from the last three weeks and tonight... I put stuff out on that Facebook page. If you don't belong, you can ask to join. It's free. <laughs> and like the handouts will be there if you want to get that printed out at home, make notes, whatever. I would encourage you to do that. The questions that are on these sheets, we can't cover in class. We don't have time. But they're for you. If you want to do your own Bible study, or maybe your small group wants to do a Bible study, now you got some materials to do it, to get started. Anyway, so there's a lot of stuff out here, more than I can ever talk about in class. And you're going, Phew, glad he doesn't talk about all that in class. I would be here for days. <laughs> the Word of God is powerful. And the more you dig, the more you understand, and the more it changes you. It's just that simple. So... We're in chapter 4, and I want to read a little bit, and then we're going to talk. So Paul is, is talking about, in these first three chapters, some of the very, very good things that the people in Thessalonica were doing, had done. The only way he knew was through Timothy, wasn't it? He, he couldn't talk to them on the phone. He couldn't FaceTime. He couldn't... He could not see what those believers were doing, so he had to depend on one person to bring him the word to know how things were in Thessalonica. So, to me, the first three chapters are very positive as to what they have done. Now, in chapter 4, 
Paul starts to address some issues that Timothy saw in their church. And I say church, I say ecclesia, because it's not the building. <laughs> so I'd like to read the, the first part of chapter 4, and then, then we're going to talk a little bit. So, finally, and when pastor says finally, you know, you've probably got a good 30 minutes yet. <laughs> pastor Scott gave me the thumbs up on that. Finally is not really, it, it's kind of there. So, finally then, brethren. Brethren, meaning we're all together in this. We're fellow believers in Yeshua Messiah. We request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, and then he puts in parentheses, at least in mine, just as you actually do walk, that you may excel still more. So, I keep going back to this three Sabbaths. Here he says, just as you received from us instruction as to how you ought to walk. Okay, realize how much of the Bible did they have in their hands? And probably not in their hands. <laughs> they had the Tanakh, the Old Testament. That was it. And it was probably only one copy, and it was probably in the synagogue. So it's not like they could go home and study it. <laughs> Things are way different today. So these new believers who were well taught, I'm sure, in the Jewish faith, probably could recite from memory large sections of Torah, which I can't do, but that was common, very common. Because they didn't have a written copy in their hands, they had to put it here. And as a result, it was here. So things are different. So he's saying that in the three Sabbaths that I was with you, you received instruction as to how you ought to walk. So one title for this book might be Living in the Light of Jesus Coming. That's going to get us to the back end of chapter 4. So he's building for them kind of a case he said, okay, I've told you the good stuff. Here's the good news. Now I'm going to talk about the not-so-good news that I've heard. Okay, verse 2. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. Okay, when he says commandments, what do you think he means? And in your mind, here we go. This is the Western mindset. Oh, well, he gave them the Ten Commandments. Oh, they knew those already, right? If he wanted to do the commandments, there's 613. They could learn all those and probably knew them anyway. That is not what he's talking about here. This is not the Ten Commandments. Have you ever heard, have you ever talked to somebody having a conversation about their relationship with, with God? And the first thing they said was, well, I keep the Ten Commandments. And the first thing you say is, no, you don't. Because <laughs> you know better than that. <laughs> Wasn't there a young man in the New Testament that said, I've kept all the commandments from my youth. And Jesus is saying, well, there goes lying. Uh, we can't keep them. That's the whole point of the law. We can't do it. So we need somebody to take care of it for us. That's, that's why we have to have the law to see that we can't live up to the law. So when he says commandments, that's not what he's talking about. He's given them instruction on Christian living. In three Sabbaths, not only has he introduced them to Jesus as Messiah, which for a Jew would be huge that they would believe that, and then went on from there and said, this is how you ought to live. I mean, some of, well, do you remember a guy named Eutychus? Anybody know that name? He was a young man sitting in the window, 
of a house. There were candles burning. He fell asleep, fell out, hit the ground, died, and Paul went out and revived him so he could come back in and listen some more. I, that may have been the way things were on Sabbath with Paul. He just didn't quit because he had so much to share. So he's telling them this by whose authority? What does it say? Jesus Christ, right? Where did Paul encounter Jesus Christ to get that authority? Road to Damascus? He was not with the group of disciples, was he? He said, I was a disciple out of time. <laughs> and, and Jesus plucked him out and said, okay, you. You will change the world. If we didn't have the writings of Paul, we would know so little about how we should have a relationship with Jesus. Paul is critical. Thirteen books for sure in the New Testament written by him. Okay, so verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Big word, what does it mean? What does it mean to be sanctified? Well, I'm holier than the rest of them. I'm holier than Rodney. No. What does the word sanctification mean? Set apart. It's that simple. Set apart from sin to God. Set apart. That's the process right here. That's what changes us on a day-to-day -day basis. As we grow in the faith, we do, I hope, we do not look the same today as what we looked 10 years ago or when you first came to faith. If you look the same or you look even worse, something's wrong. We need to be progressing in how we learn about God and changes the way that we walk day by day. That is sanctification. So he says, for this is the will of God. Everybody wants to know what's the will of God for my life. Do what God says. Pretty simple. When I was in college, everybody was asking that question. I want to know the will of God for my life. And, and our pastor at that time said, yep, just do what God tells you. <laughs> and he was like, come on, give me something better than that. No, that's what you got to do. Do what God tells you. That's the will of God for my life. For this is the will of God, your growing up, your being set apart in him. That is that you abstain from sexual immorality. So we think that we live in a very decadent culture, don't we? We talk about it a lot. We talk about the fact that we can't turn on television or even get onto the internet, or even open up your phone and not have some obscene ad blasted at you that you did not expect. That's not your fault. It's what you do with it. That was for free. <laughs> so we, we think about being in a decadent culture, but the culture that Paul addressed in the church of Thessalonica was absolutely no better. In fact, it was some cases worse, if you can imagine. They just didn't have television and internet and phones and printed media. But it was different. It was on every street. So if you walked down the street of Corinth or the street of Thessalonica, you would probably get accosted by an evangelist from some god's Cult wanting you to join them. That, that's, that's one thing, right? But I'm, I, I want to read something from a Greek uh, philosopher, Demosthenes. This is how he described that culture in Thessalonica. We keep prostitutes for pleasure. We keep mistresses for the day-to-day -day needs of the body. 
We keep wives for the faithful guardianship of our homes. Does that explain the culture a little better? That's what it looked like as Paul was ministering to these people in Thessalonica. Corinth was worse, if you can imagine. So it wasn't like he was talking to a bunch of saintly people. It, that was their culture. There was nothing wrong with, with the, the priests were in charge of the prostitutes, if you can imagine that. It's crazy, but that's the culture they were in. So Paul feels, feels it really, really necessary to talk to these new believers and say, guys, you got to be on your guard. You've got to actually change the way you're living because it isn't going to work. It's going to drag you down a path you don't want to go down. And so that's the reason for the beginning of chapter 4. He's warning them. He's encouraging them. Change. Because this is what they're used to seeing. Okay. So we made it all the way to verse 4. That each of you know how to possess his own vessel. And that's not a, that's not a jar. Although the Bible uses that symbol of us as a clay pot. And I've actually preached a sermon on that. As we're clay. Sometimes we're like broken pots. Anyway, he says, possess your own vessel in both sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. So he's, remember where he's at. He's in the synagogue, and he's writing back to these people, these new believers, and he's saying, okay, you've got, you've got to be aware of, of what you're living in. And he uses the Gentiles, that term there, to mean non-believers in Yeshua. Okay, Not just non-Jews, but non-believers. That's what he means by that term. And that, verse 6, And that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. Just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. Well, it's just a sin. It doesn't affect anybody else. You ever thought that? In the culture. Well, it's just me. So what I do doesn't affect anybody. And you know the response to that? Hogwash? It does. That's what Paul's saying here. Is there is no sin that stands by itself, that doesn't affect your brothers and sisters, that doesn't affect your circle of friends, the world around you, the family around you. Watch and be vigilant, grow up, be sanctified, and honor, not in lustful passion. So that no man transgress and defraud his brother. See, it doesn't just affect you. It affects everybody. In the matter because the Lord is the avenger. So verse 7, Paul has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. See, that word just keeps coming back and back and back, doesn't it? Paul wants them to grow up, to become more like Jesus. That's what he's encouraging them to do here in the beginning of chapter 4. So, verse 8 in the New American Standard uses the word consequently. I had a high school government teacher that had a phrase that he would use all the time consequently, subsequently, and quently, quently. I had no idea what that meant. And he said it all the time. So therefore, I've never forgotten it. <laughs> Here, Paul is probably not looking at it in quite that light. But he's saying, okay, this is Paul. He's, he's making this long argument. You read the book of Romans, and you realize how long Paul can talk without taking a breath, it seems. Because it goes on for verses after verse after verse. And you think, stop, 
Paul, let me think a second. <laughs> so verse 8, consequently, he who rejects this is not rejecting man, not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. As believers, who do you have living inside? Holy Spirit, right? So he's, Paul is saying, it's not just about you. It's about the fact that somebody lives inside of you if you're a believer. So we're going to go on verse 9 because I want to, I want to get to the, the second part of this chapter and I won't finish this week, I guarantee it. Next week, you have to come back to get the end of the story because the end of the story is so good, you don't want to miss it. <laughs> because like I said, this book is living in the light of Jesus coming. And that's what Paul will talk about as we finish this chapter and go into chapter 5. There is, there is no passage to me in Scripture other than in 2 Thessalonians where Paul talks about these things in the way he does here. Who's he writing to? Month-old baby believers. That's, that's where we're going. But let's finish his admonition here. Verse 9. Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love agapeo. That's the word there. To put, to put the well-being of someone else ahead of your own. That's what he's saying. To love one another. That sound like Paul in 1 Corinthians 13? Yes. But this is the first letter that Paul wrote to a church. So we see Paul growing in the way he writes. This is, this is really early. So, verse 10. For indeed you do practice it toward all the brothers who in, are in all Macedonia, but we urge, we urge you, brethren, to excel even more. Exeketai. It echoes throughout the whole region. If Paul were here, he would say, make your lives look like these believers to echo throughout all of southern Indiana. That's what he's saying here. That's what he'd say to us. For you indeed practice it to all the brethren in Macedonia, and he'd probably throw in Achaia. Verse 11, and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and to attend to your own business and to work with your hands just as we command you. We're going to come back to that, but one of the problems that Paul was addressing in this chapter and in the next is the fact that the believers, he taught them about Jesus coming for them. And what that did to some people was well, if Jesus is coming back, I don't have to work. Because it's going to happen any day. And if I don't work, other people will take care of me. That was one of the problems that Paul ends up addressing. He wants to clear up some ideas to them that are, no, no, you can't do that. Now, here's a problem. In, in, the, in the Greek and the Roman culture, Work was looked down on. Why? They had slaves. Slaves do the work. You don't have to. So if somebody worked, it was almost demeaning. If you can imagine that. Well, now contrast that with the Jewish mindset. The Jews would say to work is to honor God. So here you got this Greek-Roman culture saying, work, are you kidding me? And the Jews are thinking, well, yeah, of course, work. God's given us a job. So uh, th th there's this collision between these two ideas. Who are the believers in this church? They're Jews. But they see a culture 
that's telling them something totally different. Ding, ding, ding. Today, do we believe something totally different than the culture around us? Do we need encouragement to not let it change us? I'm going to get this wrong, so I better not quote it. But the, the God that you make is the God that you serve. And that's not exactly the one I wanted to say it. I'll, I'll think of it. We'll be, we'll be back to that idea before we're done. So he says, lead a quiet life, attend to your own business, and work with your hands, just as we command you, so that you may behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. So the believers thought, I'm just going to go pack up, and I'm going to go to the hill. I'm just going to hang out there till Jesus returns. That was, their, that was how they saw it. Now, that's not a bad thing, because in their minds, Jesus was going to come back at any time. They were ready. Paul was ready. We'll, we'll see that in some of these later verses in this chapter. Paul truly believed that Jesus would come back while he was still alive. But he had to address things in the end of this chapter, beginning of chapter 5. Okay? So that's, that's where we're going to find ourselves. Verses 13 to 18. So I'm not, I'm not going to do a lot of commentary yet. I'm just going to read. Because that's the best way to study Scripture. Let Scripture interpret Scripture. And I'll throw this one in for free. If the plain sense makes good sense, seek no other sense, or you end up with nonsense. <laughs> if the plain sense makes good sense, seek no other sense, otherwise you end up with nonsense. A text without a context is a pretext for error. In other words, don't take one verse out of Scripture and build a doctrine around it. Okay? Those are some, some good gems to live by. I didn't write those, but I, I kind of live by them. Okay? So, verses 13 to 18, I'm going to read to you out of a more expanded translation. This is, uh, give me a second. This is from Kenneth Wiest. He's got a four-volume set of Greek translation of the New Testament. It's a phenomenal set. This, this is just one of the volumes. And I'm going to read his translation starting uh, in, in verse 12. So you can kind of follow along. He, he kind of expands things a little bit, but I think it's helpful. Okay? Verse 12, now, now we, we request of you, brethren, that you recognize those for what they are and is entitled to the respect due them who work to the point of weariness among you and who are in authority over you in the Lord and admonish you. And be esteeming them most highly with a divine and self-sacrificial love because of their work. Be constantly at peace among yourselves. Now we beg of you, please, brethren, be admonishing those who are rebellious, be encouraging the faint-hearted, be a mainstay to those who are spiritually weak, be always patient toward all with that patience which endures ill-treatment meekly and without retaliation." Be seeing to it constantly that a person does not return evil in exchange for evil to anyone, but always be striving for that which is beneficial to one another and for all men. Oh, you know what? I was reading chapter 5. That was really good, but... <laughs> Why didn't somebody stop me? Please, folks! <laughs> 
help me. That was really good stuff, but that's next week. <laughs> I'm sorry. This is chapter 4. <laughs> and I'm going to start in verse 13. I knew that didn't seem right, but I just plowed on ahead, didn't I? <laughs> Even though it doesn't make sense, just keep going, Jim. All right. Verse 13. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Okay, this will read better. <laughs> Quit it, Rodney. <clears throat> now, we do not wish you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who from time to time are falling asleep, and he adds the word dying, in order that you may not be mourning in the same manner as the rest who do not have a hope. For in view of the fact that we believe that Jesus died and arose, thus also will God bring with him those who have fallen asleep through the intermediate agency of Jesus. I told you there's more here than what's probably in yours. For this we are saying to you by the Lord's word that as for us who are living and are left behind until the coming of the Lord, we shall by no means precede those who fell asleep. Because the Lord himself, with a cry of command, with an archangel's voice, and with a call of a trumpet sounded at God's command shall descend from heaven, and the dead in Christ shall be raised first." Then as for us who are living and who are left behind, together with them we shall be snatched away forcibly. And he puts this in parentheses. In masses of saints having the appearance of clouds for a welcome meeting with the Lord in the lower atmosphere. And thus always shall we be with the Lord so that be encouraging one another with these words. Read a little different than yours. But it was actually the right chapter. <clears throat> Sorry about that. Okay, before, before we really try to dig into this, let's just read what Paul is teaching the Thessalonian believers. Remember, three week, three Sabbaths he was there. And he's saying, I'm going to reemphasize something I've already taught you. So you feel like, well, maybe Paul did a master class while he was there. Well, I think Paul feels like this is pretty essential stuff. The coming of the Lord is foundational to what we as believers have our hope, our patience of hope built on, right? So I want to just read and, and we'll note some things as we go along here. So... Verse 13, it says, we don't want you to be uninformed, brethren. I don't know what your translation says there. Uninformed? What does yours say? Ignorant? Okay. Well, I'm an agnostic. I'm not. You ever talk to somebody that kind of puffs their chest up? I'm an agnostic. I don't know that there really is a God or not. And I don't know if he cares about me, even if there is one. I'm an agnostic. You know what that word agnostic means in the original? It means ignoramus. So, oh, I'm an ignoramus. That's nothing to really brag about, guy. That's what it means. And so Paul is saying here, I don't want you to be ignoramuses, <laughs> you new believers. He, he kind of said that, didn't he? Depends on your translation. I don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. So what's he saying? Here's this group of believers, and in the time that Paul was there, left, Timothy went to see him, came back, Paul wrote the letter, sent it back, in that period of time, which may have been eight to nine months, there were believers that died. And they're wrestling with this issue. What happens when Jesus comes and Uncle Charlie is in the ground? What do we do with that? 
Would it have been better if Uncle Charlie had stayed alive until Jesus comes back? That's the question he's asking here. So, we don't want you to be ignorant about those who are asleep. So that, that's, a, that's a Bible term. Asleep is not like you are sometimes in one of my Bible studies. Um, sleep is sleep of the dead, right? That's what that means. That you may not grieve as do the rest of those who have no hope. Do you know a lot of people in the world that have no hope? I just heard about a suicide. That person had no hope. They couldn't see that there was going to be anything any better than what it's been in the past, and so they ended. Paul said, I don't want you to be like those people. So in verse 14, if we believe, it's not if. Your translation may, may have a different wording, but I would read this since we believe, not if we believe. For since we believe, that word believe there, pistuo, is the root from which we get the word faith. Okay? That Jesus died and rose again two of the very most fundamental things that we believe about Jesus. That he died for my sins, that he was buried, and that he rose again. Without those three elements, we don't have salvation, do we? If he just died, as some religions would tell you, what did that gain? He was just another guy that died. The fact that he rose again is key because that means he conquered death and the grave for us. So Paul's, he's encouraging them that Jesus died and he rose again. Literally that Greek word there, rose again, is to stand again. Even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Paul is encouraging the Thessalonican believers that even though Uncle Charlie is in the grave, there is a future for him with Jesus. And now he's going to explain it. Okay? For this we say to you by the word of the Lord. So Paul is, is, is putting a stamp of authority on what he's going to say right here. That we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord. We're going to talk about that in comparison to what some people call the second coming. Two different events, I believe. Okay? So we say to you that by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not proceed or be ahead of those who have fallen asleep or are in the ground. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with three things. What does it say? A shout, the voice of an archangel, and the trumpet of God. Those three things. He's going to descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel. Do we know any archangels? Well, not personally. Do you know in the Bible someone who is called an archangel? <laughs> of course he knows. It's Michael. Michael in Jude verse 9 is called the archangel of God because he disputes with Satan for the body of Moses, which is crazy. That's a whole nother study. Well, okay, so you just mentioned two others. Depends on which, which uh, tradition you follow. Is Gabriel an archangel? He's never called that in Scripture. And then, I believe Catholic tradition names Raphael. I work with a guy named Raphael. He is not an archangel. I don't know where they got the name, but some traditions have seven or eight archangels that they, they've pulled out of non-canonical books like 
the books of Enoch, things like that. I know of only one place in scripture where it names an archangel, and that would be Michael, the battling angel. The angel that makes announcements we call what? Gabriel, who came to Mary and says, you're going to be with child. Gabriel, who came to Daniel and told him about what's coming up. Gabriel. So different angels have different responsibilities. I know of only one named archangel, and that's Michael. It doesn't say that here, but that's what I know. Okay. So a shout, the voice. Oh, the voice? The voice of an archangel? Have you ever heard an angel? Besides your spouse? That was supposed to elicit a laugh. Um, <laughs> sometimes it's the voice of an angel. <laughs> I'm going I'm to leave it alone. Yeah, that, that, thank you for that encouragement. Uh, and the trumpet of God. So three things, shout, voice of an archangel, and trumpet of God. Some translations use the word Trump there. This has nothing to do with our ex-president. Please don't make that mistake. And the trumpet of God, is that a trumpet? Is that a long silver temple trumpet? And I would say no. My thinking is that's a shofar. So the Bible uses the word trumpet interchangeably with what we would call a shofar. And then it says, and the dead in Christ, Uncle Charlie, will rise first. Okay? Verse 17. Then we who are alive and remain shall be, and here's the key word. The one word that everybody says, well, that word's not in the Bible, and they're absolutely right. <laughs> you know the word I'm talking about. <laughs> you all know it. You've just muttered it under your breath. And I can't get the cap off. Wow, that's got a neat sound. It's this word. That word actually comes from the Vulgate, the Latin Vulgate. And it's the word rapturo. It is not in the English Bible. It's not in the Greek Bible. So somebody's going to say to you, well, what did you talk about Wednesday night? Well, we talked about the rapture. Well, that word's not in the Bible. Well, let me give you a word that is, okay? Then you can respond to that. That's the Greek word that's used here. And I don't know how your translation reads. Mine says, those who are caught up. The, the word in the New Testament is used at least 13 times. The meaning of that word is to catch up, to take by force, to catch away, to pluck, to catch, to pull. That's the meanings of that word. Imagine you were, you were given the choice of a litter of puppies and they're in this basket. And you get to reach in and snatch one out. By force, if you have to. That's the idea of harpazo, being snatched away. Were there other people in the Bible that were snatched away? And I would say, yes, there were. Enoch, Elijah, to name two. And there's more, we, we can talk about those. But here's the whole idea those who are alive and remain will be caught, pulled out, along with those who have already died, together with them. Where does this happen? What does it say? In the clouds. It doesn't say on the earth. It doesn't say in heaven. It says in the clouds. Dead, we catch up with them. And we're with Jesus. This is the snatching away, or some people call it the great snatch. To meet the Lord where? In the air. And as a result of this snatching away, 
we will be with the Lord how long? Forever. This is the great hope of Christianity right here. This snatching away. When's it going to happen? We don't know. Could it happen anytime? Absolutely. Paul believed that Jesus would come back before he died. I believe in what's called imminent return of Jesus. That it could be any day. That's what I believe. Because I think that's what scripture teaches. <laughs> and we can, we can discuss a lot of this stuff. And let me, before I finish tonight, we don't have to agree on everything I'm saying. And probably we won't. And that's okay. But we can talk about it. And you're still my brother and sister. But together we have a great hope, don't we? That forever we will be with the Lord. And Paul ends this chapter, therefore, comfort. And the Greek there is parakaleo, kind of like Holy Spirit. One called alongside to help. The comforter, the advocate, comfort one another with these words. You've heard this read at funerals, and you have this idea maybe in your mind, and so on the, on the back side of your handout, I've got a couple pictures that obviously we will not be able to talk about tonight. And I kind of did that on purpose so that you'll come back next week. <laughs> I want to put that hook out there so that we can talk about it. But here's a picture of, uh, this is the best that as I understand it. And this is where it starts to get a little mm, difficult because some people have different ideas of how this is going to happen. All I can do is go from scripture and teach you what I believe scripture teaches. I don't want to go beyond that. But I will tell you that there are excellent scholars that teach different things about this roadmap of the future. I'm just giving you one. But what I know for sure is what we just read. In that top diagram, you see an arrow going up, don't you? And what does it say? It says harpazo. No, it says rapture. Just because the Bible doesn't use the word, the, the teaching is there. So next week, we're going to dovetail this in with 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and try to get a better idea. And just, just to warn you, you're going to have to bring your Old Testament too because we're going to be in the book of Daniel. And we're going to look at Daniel's prophecy about 70 weeks and how that fits into this. So be here next week. This is the most exciting thing I think I can teach I want you on the edge of your seat because this is incredible. It's the most preposterous idea in the world, isn't it? Richard Feynman, the great physicist, said quantum mechanics literally makes no sense. The only thing it has for going for it is that it's absolutely true. And, and the doctrine of the coming of our Lord is exactly like that. Does it make sense that we'll catch up with the dead in Christ in the air? That's craziness. But that's what the book says. That's what's going to happen. And you should be excited about it. So let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that, that you've given us an exciting future. That we know that we will be with you forever as believers in the shed blood of Yeshua, that we have a grand hope of what our future will be. Thank you for providing for that. Help us to live that out every single day as we walk, waiting for the coming of our Lord and Savior, Yeshua HaMashiach, the one that we love and are waiting for, day by day by day. And we pray this in your name. Amen.
Thank you for joining us this week. Until next time.